Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness, and work culture. Here we are again. Good morning. It's Bruce Taisley. It's a podcast about making work better. This is the 48th episode. I can't tell you how much I love today's guest, Carrie Cooper. He's a sir, actually. Sir Carrie Cooper. I've met him about four times. And you know when you meet someone, you're struck with your own inarticulacy, that you can't quite express how much you enjoy their company. I keep dreaming that maybe me and him will have a glass of wine, a cup of tea, maybe a cake. There's an interesting thing in that, you know. I was listening to something fantastic uh, last week. She was explaining that since we sort of transformed our perception of marriage, marriage used to be just like partnership between people. And now we sort of try and regard it as finding the one. And we've turned the burden of the responsibility of marriage. We've turned it up several notches. And it's it had the consequence of changing the nature of male friendship. Most straight relationships involve the woman now making more social plans than ever before, with the net result that men in their 30s and 40s are lonelier than ever. And we've had it a lot, haven't we? High-profile deaths of men in the news, and they've all been uh, self-inflicted recently. I think we're starting to become aware that the culture of toxic masculinity that we've created is actually making people feel men feel lonelier than ever so i know asking to sympathize with men probably isn't always a cool thing but if you are a man or you know a man ask a man out on a mandate this week i'm serious ask a man to go and hang out with you have a glass of wine have a beer whatever men drink with another man anyway uh that's (laughs) How did I get into that? I was just, you know, I was just thinking men should spend more time with men. Anyway, back to Carrie. His story's fascinating as well, you know. So Carrie Cooper was born to Eastern European Jewish parents who independently flew to the US to avoid persecution in the Second World War. And he settled in West Hollywood where Carrie was born. He's now British. He's a psychologist. He's a professor of organisational psychology and health at the Manchester Business School, which is part of University of Manchester. He founded Robertson Cooper, which is this business, which sort of a collection of psychologists and well-being experts intent on helping people have a good day at work. Their goal is to create a good days at work, which sounds a laudable mission. And everyone I've met there is just brilliantly inspiring too, which I guess shows good people hire good people. Uh, he's also a brilliant follow on Twitter. He's he's at Prof Carrie Cooper. Anyway, every time I meet him, I feel like we could chat all day. And in our discussion here, he, he talks about an experiment he did on a workplace for an ITV show, about the impact of stress at work. He gives his top advice that he'd give to any business. The guy's a legend. Here's to Carrie Cooper. 
thank you so much for joining me today. I'm like, I'm thrilled because we, we met a, a, a couple of months yeah, ago. Yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation We had then, a, yeah. a fabulous chat then. And I guess, you know, there's a reason why you're often the go-to person that when news organisations are looking for an expert about workplace stress and the, and the way that the world of work is affecting our lives, they come to you. And so I just thought, well, what a fabulous opportunity to sit down and maybe take stock with, of some of the things that I've been looking at over the last 40 episodes of this podcast and get and get an expert's perspective on some sure, of those things. Sure, no problem. Look, I mean, the first one, let's dive into to one of the biggest things, which is, uh, I think, one of the challenges that leads to workplace stress right now is an obsession that a lot of it, obviously still have, a lot of workplaces still have, with presenteeism. And it, you seem to have a sort of quite clear perspective on the damage that that's doing to us. Yeah, well, here's what presenteeism is. Okay, so a number of years ago, uh, you know, when we had the first recession in the 80s, I remember journalists came to me and said to me, uh, you know, the, it's funny, we're going through a recession, but uh, absenteeism is dropping. I said, well, do you think if people are feeling job insecure during a recession. If they're ill, do you think they're not gonna to go to work? Yeah. Of course they're gonna to go to work. But that, doesn't, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're producing added value to the product or service they're doing at work. In fact, quite the opposite. They're just showing FaceTime. So that was the first kind of thing, that, that first recession. Then, all of a sudden, economists started to look at it. Just before the recession, a group of economists, the Sainsbury Center for Mental Health, said that, did some costing. These are top guys did this costing, and they said that presenteeism was double the cost of absenteeism to the UK economy. Double. Right, right. It was 15 billion as opposed to 8 billion. Get out, so people being at their desk, what, in what, what in a Coming reduced either, state? Well, the, the, at that time, it was just sickness presenteeism. In other words, coming to work ill, but contributing no added value. Right. And that's the cost. It's a cost in several different ways, but one way is if, if it's absenteeism figures is going up, your HR, you deal with it right? But presenteeism is hidden. The guy, the guy or the gal is sitting in front of their machine. They're not doing anything, but they're there because they're frightened of not being there, all right? But with the when the recession came, it got even worse because whether you were... So it's not just about sickness presenteeism. It's also about just being job dissatisfied. And think about during the recession with all the downsizing, right-sizing, whatever the American... That's the kind of words they use. You know, what, whatever it is, people were losing their job. The job insecurity meant that people were going to show a lot of FaceTime. They're going to come early, stay late. When they're ill, they're going to come in. And that's what presenteeism is about. It's about going to work and not, not contributing any added right, value. Okay. And it's, it's big. It got bigger in the recession. And it's still big because, to be honest with you, jobs are no longer for life. They're not secure. So people are still wanting to show a lot of FaceTime. And actually, if you take a look at productivity per capita, which country in Europe has the highest productivity? Germany. Germany. What's the average working week? 35 hours. Okay. Britain is about 50. If you look at not, it's not 40, it's about 50. I've done studies on it. Uh, lots of occupations. And is that, is that partly down to the mix of the slightly more... Service-based economy. Yeah, that's right. So, so Britain's service-based, so we're, so we're using our mobile phones more to, to but by check the way, in with email. But that 50 hours a week doesn't even count. All right, let's take the email thing, because oh, you and what? I are going to get into that anyway. Let, let's do it now, because this Go is on. quite interesting. If I say it's 50 hours a week, so I've done surveys with a chartered management institute of hours of work of managers from shop floor to top floor. And, and this is else. like someone filling out a diary and saying... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? 
and this is, we do a big, huge quality of working life survey, right? With CMI, Chartered Management Institute, from shop floor to top floor managers, yeah. so very senior and all the way down. Ten percent, roughly ten percent work over a fifty hour, ten uh, percent work over a sixty hour week right. every week. Another forty, thirty, some odd percent work over fifty hours a week, right? So we have about seventy percent work above their contracted hours every single week. Now that doesn't take into account what they do with their mobile. What do they do with their mobile when they go home? But let's work that out. So what? But so that that's is, not even that's emails that they Friday, look at. Someone yeah. turning up at what? 8.30 rather than contracted 9 or 9.30. And then working Absolutely. through lunch to what? 6? Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's easily possible, isn't it? And then when they get home, uh, one of the, I think it was HR Magazine. One of the magazines did a survey through all the HR things. They were looking at the use of mobiles, and they found out that 40, roughly 40% of people, the first thing they do in the morning is turn their mobile on and look at their emails. Yeah. Roughly the same number, I think it was a little bit higher, do it just before they go to bed at yeah. night. It's constantly on, isn't it? I, I think when mobile technology came, it was different than, than a laptop. So if you have a laptop, it was a pain in the backside yeah. to open it up just to check your emails. But you've got your phone on all the time for your kids, for other things, you know, your private life. And it's so easy just to hit it. Well, I saw something that said that the average working day had gone up to two hours since the arrival of email on a mobile phone. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it has. By the, yeah. way, do we, by the way, Bruce, we don't want to throw that away. We don't want the technology, you know, I'm not a Luddite saying let's get rid of emails, although there are companies are trying to do that, by the way, now, and create platforms where people yeah. have to talk to each other. Yeah. Atos Origin is a company that uh, I think was doing that last time I talked to the CEO a couple of years ago. She said they were trying to do, they were creating platforms so people were forced across the world to talk to each other, but not use emails and drop it on a, on a platform. I don't really want to do the German law. Uh, I'm sorry, the French law, which says, which was just passed a few months ago, saying that no manager can send an email out of office hours to their subordinate. First of all, it's totally unenforceable. But but we want flexible working. Mo yeah. A lot of people want it. And you need you need emails. It's a question of how do we control the technology rather than let it control us. Yeah, it's the, I'm, I'm really conflicted on it because one of the things I think that is everyone's right in work is to have the, the right to have a digital Sabbath, the, the right to sort of have this punctuation over the weekend from your boss. Oh, absolutely. You. But clearly, simultaneously, there's a need for autonomy. So, the, look, yep. while, while most people should be protected 51 weeks of the year from weekend emails, there might be something that's gone off where a boss exactly. should feel empowered to bring you in because you'd be concerned. So it's about sort of achieving, it's, it's permitting autonomy, isn't it? It's permitting having the rules of engagement that are established. Rather than it being forced on yeah. you. So if your boss sends you on a Saturday an email that's not significant, the building's not burning down, yeah. a client, a massive client is not leaving, then you, you, you tell that boss, don't do it. Only send it to them when it's really kind of very significant. I mean, they're just so basic rules of it. The rules are you're in the same building, you know. I'm sitting here in Twitter right yeah. now and, and, and people are sitting around the desk. And why would you send an email to somebody five desks down? Why wouldn't you just go over to them and talk to them? Right. So here's the thing. So I, I chatted to um, Professor Anita Williams-Woolley the other day. For okay. Fabulous discussion. I sort of had it on a January podcast. And it was all about the collective intelligence of teams. So what she found was that teams who 
were highly empathetic. People who could read each other in teams were more collectively intelligent. If you've got your own individual creativity, most acts of creativity involve multiple people and you'd be collectively more creative, more intelligent if you were empathetic. That's an interesting finding. If you permit me, what I'm saying by extrapolation is my concern is that we're creating, because we're not pushing back on email, we're creating work environments where empathy isn't a practiced skill and it isn't a valued skill. So someone who's able to handle 150 emails a day and manage the volume of, of meeting requests they get, actually that capability is what we're increasingly rewarding in work environments. Whereas based on her research, people who sit, chat, work together. In fact, the work of Alex Pentland at MIT says that creativity is forged by chat between people. Of course people. it is. I, I, think we, I think we've not. This is interesting. So I created this national forum for health and well-being of lots of major employers. Okay. I, and they're made up of like HR directors, uh, chief medical officers, and heads of health. And what we do quarterly meet somewhere in London, one of the headquarters of one of the companies, you know, BT, BP, you know, Shell, there's a whole load of them, you know. Um, anyway, and they're big employers. And, and I said, what are the topics you want to do work on? Let's do something with this. First one was line managers. They said line managers from shop floor to top floor are the people who either damage or make people thrive at work. Totally agree. It's your boss. The second theme was emails and the third thing was empathy. Right, okay. And the two, the second and third are linked, right. I think. So emails they were worried about saying that too many, you know, people are on 724 now and uh, managers are kind of abusing that in a sense. To get rid of their in-tray, they dump on somebody else on a Friday night yeah. or a Saturday or whatever. Or It's not just managers, but even colleagues are doing that. The third one was the empathy thing. And they were saying, I don't think we, we have managers and people in the workplace. And th this is like Staffordshire Hospital, right? The nurses lost the empathy and compassion, didn't they? So this is, that was right, wasn't it? So, th so there was an intervention in mid-Staffordshire Hospital. Absolutely. Where the hospital was widely, widely being regarded as failing the patients. Oh, absolutely. And the report that came back, the mid-Staffs report, came back and said there was a fundamental lack of empathy. So That's it, right. And, and these people, very senior people, say they're seeing it in managers and, every, and everybody else. Now, is it, there are two things here. Is it that we're not, we're not seeing it because we're hiring the wrong managers from a, from a psychological perspective? Are, are we hiring in people who are very bottom line but don't have the empathy and don't have the EQ and social skills? Probably to some extent, yes. And particularly since the recession, bottom line people drive it. Listen, we're in trouble here. We're we've downsized. We have heavy workloads. Get them, get them working at the coalface. That's part of it. But I think another part of it, which is something you've alluded to, and I think you're absolutely right about, is that if people aren't interacting with one another, where are they getting their social skills yeah. from? I mean, you're losing the muscle memory, right? You, yeah, you, you, lose, you lose it. You lose it. I mean, don't you think people go into being a social work, a nurse, a doctor, or whatever? because they have compassion? Sure they do. Somehow it gets kicked out of them when you have huge queues in a hospital, A&E, or when it's, you're, dealing, you're a social worker with a, too heavy of a workload and you just you begin to lose it. You do it in an office when you're just sitting in front of a machine and I'm emailing Bruce and I'm four machines away or just upstairs and you need it. And by the way, that worries me about kids. Think about the next generation mm. of kids who are on, you know, I know it's your business 
being in the virtual world. But that what, what worries me about social media is too much of it means that kids are developing relationship, virtual relationships, but they need a lot of face-to-face -face interaction. If they don't, they won't develop their own social skills, their own empathy. That's how you learn, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the lesson, full stop, irrespective of my day job, the, I think the lesson of the last few years is that the fundamental thing that we need to teach school kids is to empathise that the person at the receiving end of messages Absolutely. is a real individual. And so, you know, to try and bring those things in. But I've broadly ended up in a perspective where I think I, I attended a, a conference of HR professionals the other day, invite me to come and speak. And what I witnessed there is what I witnessed in, in you know, through chats with other people, through my own organisation, is that often we perceive that the solution to these things is adding new things. Oh, well, we're setting up a new initiative, we're setting up a new scheme, we're setting up, which is completely fine to my mind as long as we commit to remove other things. And the challenge I think is that yeah. we've got, the average Brit spends two days a week in meetings and then has an additional burden of email communication that never existed 20 years ago, albeit it might have ex sort of existed in some form 10 years ago. But we've, we've layered all this stuff on top of people. We're and taking people away from people because even in a meeting, it's formal. That's right. It's not me interacting with you like I'm doing right now and having a nice conversation with you. you it's nothing. It's here's the agenda item. What's a We have to reach a decision on this. It's not about developing a kind of team a relationship. And you're going back to your, your thing about the team IQ in a way or EQ as well. You develop that in teams by building close relationships with people. And we need it. It's so, it's so desperate that we do that you know, at every level, because that's where creativity comes from. I've sort of reached this conclusion. So tell me, I mean, you're, you're far more erudite and done more research than me. I've sort of reached this, this, con this conclusion that unless we commit to reducing the amount of email that everyone's got, then that everything else is window dressing. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I mean, there's some companies, as I said earlier, who are trying to get rid of 80 or 90 percent of it. I think what we have to do is we have to get people, well, organizations have to ask themselves the question, um, what's our guidance here? Guess what? So at this National Forum for Health and Wellbeing, I asked everybody, how many of you have specific guidance? And recently I just went and did a, a big lecture to a lot of HR people and to another big conference. And every time I ask the same question, how many of your organizations have guidance, just simple guidance on try not to, if you're a manager, send emails to anybody out of office hours, unless it's absolutely vital. Uh, how many of you actually don't send emails within the same building to people. You try to go see them, you get up off your desk. By the way, that's physically good for you. How many of you don't only CC in the people that really matter, not the whole world or to protect your backside, right? And you get a few hands up. You get almost no hands saying that their, their organization even has guidelines on it. I saw a thing that you did on the ITV Tonight program oh, yeah. where you went into a company and you asked them to try. Was it just committing on Fridays or was it you asked them to not email in all week? We started what we did. We had a, was, this was fun. It was a chief exec, I think, got in touch with this ITV and said Cooper's down the road at Manchester Business School. Bring him in. Because I, what I want to do is I don't want people to talk. I want people to talk to one another. So there's no emails between them in the office and that they shut down. And he was saying even more extreme that I take the work, I take the work um, mobile and I just confiscate it for a whole week. Right. Unlike like Volkswagen, who actually block it at five yeah. o'clock and turn it on eight o'clock in the morning. And I thought it was fantastic. So we went in 
on the Friday did filming of what people looked like, and we said it was something else. Then on Monday morning, they didn't know what we were doing. They thought we were just doing the organ, you know, the company. And by the way, it was an IT company, right? And nobody was talking to anybody. Then on Monday morning, we got in. I said, okay, here's the experiment we're going to try. Your CEO wants to try this, right? Let's have a go. So you don't send emails to anybody. You can send, a, a, if you have to send a, a kind of a file, a file yeah. with data. Yeah. You send the file, but you don't say anything. And right. you go over and talk to them about the file. First of all, then we, we filmed every day. But we also filmed, which didn't come in the, in the program. We didn't have enough space. We asked the families. What did they? Right, we filmed okay. the family. And the family said, my, my husband's coming back home. And he's sitting there. And he's talking to the kids about what happened at school rather than going on his uh, mobile looking at his emails. And it was, it was fascinating. And they all loved it. And the guy has carried on. He's carried on with it because he right. said it's to help my business. And, and by Friday, you just saw them all interacting. Whereas the Friday before, they were sitting in their, in their thing, not talking to one another at all. Right. I mean, it just, it's just astounding, the thing. But it's not getting rid of it. It's just trying to manage Balance it a bit. Balance it, isn't it? It's about balance, isn't it? I want to go home at night. And, you know, my kids are older now, but... I want to go home at night and, you know, and talk to my kids. Like tonight, I'm going to go with my grandkids, right? I don't want to be doing my email when I'm talking to my grandkids. Cal Newport said something to me, like a, an American author. Yeah. He said something to me. He said, as a thought experiment, it's a good way to understand your relationship with email. If you think about how would the communication in this company change if no one had a personal email, they only had a collective email. In many ways, things that are important that you need to communicate one to many, and you might be in three yeah. groups, yeah. you know, so it might be managers at your company, it might yeah. be everyone at your company, it might be women at your company. There, there might be three groups that you can email. It then stops being this constant ping pong of dialogue. Oh, I yeah. I think what it ultimately comes down to is the critical size of teams, doesn't it? Because, you know, there's that sweet spot of teams between 30 and 100 people, which is like this magical number. You're in a, you know everyone's name. You can just get so You want to keep done. it as small so That's you right. do know them, not just their names, who they are. Yeah. You know, with their family. You want to know them as human beings. And as soon as anything... It gets too big. It goes you, over. You, you, yeah. you, you kind of lose it. But you know, Bruce, when, as we're talking, it makes me think, if you look at the emails, you look at empathy, you look at all that kind of stuff we've been talking about, hours people work, uh, countries that have the, just go back to the hours. Germany has the highest productivity per capita in Europe. Britain has the highest hours and the lowest productivity per capita. We're seventh in the, the UK is seventh in the G7 and 17th in the G20. And, I've, I've and it has the longest working hours behind the United States in the developed world. Uh, obviously, the emerging economies like China and India are, they're off the, they're worse than both the US and the UK. I've spent a lot of time looking at those stats, and I think they're particularly pronounced because we are so exposed to office work. So, yep, so we are. the majority of jobs in the UK... Uh, Difficult to do a productivity thing on them. No, but I think because we're exposed to office work, yeah. offices are deeply unproductive. And, yeah. and, you know, one that I've, I read this fabulous thing by Tim Harford, the economist last yeah. year, and he said, he, he pro pretty much summarized what a lot of people have been saying over the last few months, which is, the, or the last few years, which is never in history has this technological transformation happened to work. So, so quickly. So, and with zero upside to it. Yeah. So it's, you know, he said... The well, there are zero. There are upsides in the sense of providing flexible working. Right. But 
Productivity hasn't gone up, though. No, productivity hasn't so gone if, up. So if someone had said to you 20 years ago, everyone is going to be able to do precisely the same work, irrespective of where they are, because you used to have to be near the fax machine. You yeah. used to have to be yeah. near a, a scanner. You can do pretty much everything on you. you. You know, if you were dialing an international call, you needed to be a landline at work. Right? You could do pretty much everything now from your home computer. And so that liberation hasn't yielded any upside in productivity. No, here's a very interesting. So I meet some guy on the train. I'm coming down from Manchester, London a few weeks ago, somebody I know, senior guy in industry, right? And I said, um, how's everything? He says, yeah, it's great. I had a great day today. I said, well, what'd you do? Because I'm interested in why you had a good day at work. And he said, I got all my emails done. I said, no, no, I didn't ask you that question. I said, what'd you do today? What'd you contribute? Just out of curiosity, he said, no, no, I got rid of my emails. I said, it's not doing a job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I said, quite a lot of people around think that clearing their emails for the day is work. Yeah, it's illusion, isn't it? Can you imagine that? So if you're a finance guy, it's not that. You know, it's actually thinking of a way to help your organization in some way or for whatever you do. That's not the bottom line. And you're right. But it's not just about emails. And when I think about all these, the common thread for me is who your boss is. From a CEO all the way down to the bottom of an organization, if you have an, uh, a, an empathetic EQ'd, emotional intelligent, socially and interpersonally skilled person, a lot of the problems, my books on stress would not sell, right? Because th that person would recognize when you're not coping, that person would not send you emails at ridiculous hours, would not contact you when you're, he knows you're on holiday. That person would be able to kind of balance your work life, would know when you're not coping and what you're not coping with. I mean, that, that just makes common sense. Right. And I don't think we have enough of them. And I think we, and business schools are partly to blame because we don't train them on that. We train them on knowledge. We train them about marketing and economics. But do we train them to manage human beings? That's their job. No, we don't. So we don't do anything I'd call experiential. We don't train them on how do other people see you? That's interesting because one thing I read said that the last 30 years has led to this um, disproportionate emphasis on the ideas of business strategy. The ideas that, you know, that business success is conceived in a room, probably with a lone genius tapping these days into their, their PowerPoint. Yeah. And business strategy is, is a construction that then execution is just the detail. And obviously execution has a, a big impact on the final results, but it's strategy first, then execution. You know, it's very interesting because I did a book with an ex-PhD student. It's called A Strategy Delusion. It's all about that. Oh, get out. Right. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah. And it, well, it's just about, we think that if we sit down and spend a day with some guru, you know, he's going to help us sort out our total strategy here. And that's not, the, that's not what it's all about. It's about people themselves coming up with their own strategy themselves and, and developing it. But there's a lot of delusion that that's going to solve all your problems. But it's the way we do it as well. There's nothing wrong with having a strategic vision, but it's the way you do that, I mm. think. And we, we, we highlight in the book the kind of strategic, the delusions associated with trying to build a strategy and a strap line and who you are and what you represent. It, it's too long and complicated to go in now. You're right when you said that. And rather than, hey, how do we generate really good ideas as a team? 
you know, how's it, how do we come up with things that we could do that are, yeah. are fun, are interesting? And most workplaces could be fun. Yeah. They don't have to be heavy. It's an interesting thing. I don't know whether it's where we are in the economic cycle, whether it's because we're in like this prolonged down cycle, really. Yeah. There's a phenomenon, a social phenomenon, that in literature and therefore consequently half of all cinema movies um, over the last two decades have been based on the single plot line, which is lone special person. So, you know, whether it's from The Hunger Games or whether it's yeah. Lord of the Rings, like, the, the sort of lone person who's say, uh, responsible for saving mm, yeah. them. And, and business strategy largely is the, is the same in sense that people go to business school. It's all about, I'm going to yeah. construct a saviour strategy and the execution becomes like the detail. Yeah, the and, Lion King kind of concept. Right, okay. That's, that's, what, that's what it is. It, Absolutely. And so I, I just wonder whether being far more empathetic and, and recognising that in most companies, it's not necessarily a, a big differentiator of strategy. It's how the people were involved and bought into it and, yeah, and helped absolutely. deliver it. And, and, and that's that, that, Now, this is interesting. So a number of years ago, oh, a long time ago now, over 20 years ago, I went to Japan, right? And I was doing something quite novel in Japan with them. But while I was there... And it was sort of like, it's called T-groups. It was sort of sensitivity training groups. They were trying this to find out about themselves. But then I started to look at some Japanese companies. I went back later, by the way, as well. And do you know what a Japanese manager role is? Quite interesting. He's, he or she is not decisive. Your job isn't to be the Lion King and you listen to people and then you make the decision, which we have in the West. The role of a Japanese manager is to convey what the team think about that decision okay. to the next level, who then do the same thing and their manager conveys it up. And that came, if you think about, you know, autonomous work groups we used to have years ago, designing cars as a team. Volvo started that, the Japanese did that too. Let's build a car. We won't build it as fast, but guess what? We won't have any downsides of it. So and people will be engaged in developing okay. it. The so Kalmar plan in Sweden is where so they used to the notion build. of a leader as a representative Absolutely. rather than as supervisor. Absolutely. Ah, and I thought, I learned more from going there. I didn't help them at all. Because <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, the culture just smacked me. It was so different from West that I thought, you know what? They're right. Yeah. You know, a leader should be somebody that at the end of the day, the team say, we did this ourselves. And the leader should be proud of that yeah. rather than, oh, Fred is, you know, he's fantastic. Fred, you know, he comes and makes decisions. Because ultimately, and quite a lot of people do the engage, you know, we're into the engagement movement now in the UK and Western Europe and the US. And that's about leaders, no matter where they are in the organization, engaging people in decision making but frequently they do that but they don't actually do what they the team said they end up doing what they want to do in the first place they yeah. just play the game out yeah, yeah, yeah that they're listening they don't really we, we need to change that role that role would be better if it was sort of a facilitator rather than a leader go on so, so the, the along the way there so let's let's dwell on the subject of changes so along the way there you said that good workplaces require I'm trying to remember what you said. You said empathy, you said good managers, and you said... Managing by praise and reward and recognition rather than fault-finding. Okay. Giving people flexible working, understanding that long doesn't mean efficient or productive. In fact, quite the opposite. And um, giving people autonomy and control over their job. 
you know, you can do that. We just have to trust people. Think about how trusted you, you would be. Your line manager says, you listen, Kerry, we have to achieve that. How the hell you do it? It's up to you. Yeah. I'm here to help you. I'm here to support you. Do, we, do that. If you want to take longer holidays, I recently had an experience where I was judging. I don't want to name it because I, I, uh, because it, I judged I judged this series of, of, of law firms, okay? Um, and I thought one of them was really interesting. What they did was, I don't know if you know about law firms. Go on. This is interesting. So you're a lawyer. My son-in-law happens to be a lawyer. Okay. You're a lawyer. You have billable hours you have to do in a yeah. year. If you go over the billable hours, you get a bonus. Yeah. Okay? Simple as that. Uh, they work extremely long hours. You know, they don't see their families. Work-life balance is lousy. They have some flexible working, but not a lot. They really are expected to be in the office, although they can work flexibly and everything else. And I thought this one law firm I saw was, you know, put, uh, was in there in, in this uh, competition. I thought it was really great because what they decided to do, they said, well, we want to have good balance here. So what we're going to say to everybody is you won't, we won't have billable hours. None. You work as long as you want. You, the more you work, the more money you make, but it's up to you. Do you want to have work-life balance? Fine. You don't want to? You want to have, you want to be a 40-hour-a-week guy? Great. You want to be a 70-hour-a-week guy? Great. And then, no hierarchy. So, no partners, no levels. You go to a law firm, you have levels. Okay, tell me something good about how it worked out. Because I tend to well, find, when I see these cases, I know, studies, I know, the companies but, don't but remember, do that well. it's not, it might not have been a very big law firm. Okay. Right? Which it enables working. it. But, but, but you know what struck me? They were getting at the root of it. They weren't into health and well-being by having ping pong tables and uh, bean bags and apples on desks. They were getting, or massages at your desk, they were getting at the essence of what people wanted. Yeah. And what people wanted was some autonomy to determine how much they work, right? Of course, you don't get paid as much if you don't work as much, yeah. right? If you don't bring the money in, the billable hours, you're not going to get paid as much, right? And the hierarchy is difficult. I think we have that all the time. I think hierarchies in most organizations are going to be here for a long time. Yeah. People are just, we've been raised with hierarchies. We have greasy poles and ladders that people climb. And I think it'd be very hard for us to, to get away from that. But you can actually minimize it a bit. What I liked about that, that case study was the fact that... Well, and case studies like this is it just looks it, it it turns it around it doesn't try to say what health and well-being in the workplace looks like is uh you know gym membership it's not gym membership it's not apples on desks it's about how you treat people yeah so based on what they want yeah not what you want yeah them to do but based on what they want. I saw a piece of work that said that the average Americans, it was American research, the average, over 50% of Americans would prefer a new boss to extra pay. Yep. And so, you know, so back to sort of what you were saying this there. This is back to the line this, manager. Yeah, this is not giving people gym membership. That's not going to make them happier. Probably changing the person they're reporting into. Think about your career, Bruce. Think about all our careers. What made me get up in the morning and really like going to work? Yeah, it's my colleagues and everything else, but it's the manager who yeah. trusted me yeah. and, and gave me autonomy and let me, and, and I had a particular one once when I was at, uh, at UMIST who was so good. He just yeah. said, Kerry, I don't care what the hell you do when you do it. Just get on, get on with, with it. Yeah. Just get on with it and do it. And believe me, I'll let you know if you, 
if you haven't, you know, if you if you if you got getting us in trouble or whatever. And I thought, yeah, and boy, he changed my life. Tell me this: How do we get over? So, in the world where Michael Gove back in the cabinet and can say that there were everyone's getting rather tired of experts and I saw I had a brilliant discussion with Daniel Pink uh, last week yeah. where Daniel Pink was in, in his new book When which is all about sort of the impact yeah. of time and, and uh, body clock on things he, he described a situation where the evidence was that giving children a break mid-afternoon improved their concentration and, and their break in the morning improved their concentration Chris Christie governor of, uh, of New Jersey till a few weeks ago uh, said that's all nonsense. Put a line through it. And it's, it's a classic example of it's very easy for that sort of common sense, capital, capital C, capital S style politician, the people who think they're speaking truth, to come and put a line through the work of experts. And all of the stuff that you're espousing is very easy for someone to come along from the common sense school of nonsense and say... This flexibility is all a bit It's all rubbish, f- isn't it? All, all yeah, rubbish, exactly. Yeah. All a bit touchy-feely. Yeah, we're it's not, too touchy-feely, yeah. We're, we're not it's too soft. That. You can't really deliver the things. I've heard that all my career. The good news for people like me is I do the research. So I look at what we do. We do interventions all the time and take collect data. You know, we collect data before and after. We try something. The evidence is there. Hmm. So... They can say it's these experts don't know what they're talking about, and maybe some of them don't, if it's based on yeah. good quality kind of science. And we do it. Even these, these topics that, you, that we're talking about, there's data there that shows what kind of works. It doesn't work in all organizations, and you have to tweak it in some organizations. The issues about line managers is there. The issue about long hours is there. I did a meta-analysis for the HSE many years ago where we looked at long hours. And if you work long hours, you'll get ill. Simple as that. Right, okay. Consistently work long hours, not How long in a long? week. No, there is no answer to that other than 40 is about right. Anything right. over is not. Forget 40. Most people are working in a central office 40 and then they're working yeah. on the tube going home or on the train or whatever, you know, and then they're doing it at home and uh, put their laptop and everything else. So we're in a new era of that. But the evidence globally and long means ill, both physical and if it's consistently long. And we come on, we know that even if you enjoy it. Of course, if you don't enjoy it, but feel obliged, it's worse. Right. So if you're sitting in an office and you say to yourself, I finished everything really, the main stuff I have to do, but there's no way I can walk out of here before seven. A lot of people like that, they can't walk out. They don't feel they can. And they can walk out at seven. That's, you know, it depends on what office you're in. Is that good for your family? Or your relationships outside? Where did, you, where did you get your R&R from? We need balance. So how do, we great, how do we get managers or people in leadership roles to understand this? They must suffer. We had the, we had the, the big one, which was the, the, the chief executive Lloyds yeah. and uh, Antonio Hororia. He, he said, I'm, I'm not coping. And he got took off. And guess what? He's back to work and he's doing well. And Lloyds yeah. is doing well. Yeah. Then we had, but how about the Norwegian prime minister, 20 or 30, I can't remember how many years ago it was, who went on television and said, I'm, I'm suffering from depression, I'm having to take time off. But guess what? When he came back, I don't know how long he took off. When he came back, he was reelected. You know what? Would though? that happen in the UK? Yeah, I think. Would the, it happen in the US? I think the Would part- it happen in Germany? Yeah, the partisan press, and I think like the broadcast. Oh, they'd kill him. They'd kill him. They'd kill him. They'd kill him. You can't, you can't, you can't admit to. Have, and yet, one in four remember, people... Wasn't there that instance where uh, Bill Clinton said to someone, I, I feel your pain? And that, 
single gesture of empathy yeah. was seen as as damaging the president implacability and sort of I know. The, the position of the president. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's what a got, mad world we live yeah. in. And yet, one in four people in Europe, in North America, in Africa, and in Asia suffer from a common mental disorder of depression, anxiety, or stress. Clinically. One in four. Clinically. One in four. That's the figure. Such a big problem. It's the biggest single cost of sickness absence in almost every developed country. It is the big, it's the 21st century black plague. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So when you're called in to invite, to, yep. to, you're called in, in in all of your capacity as an yep. expert, to, to give advice. And clearly, each advice is different for each case. But, you know, to, to finish, can you give us what you think the big themes are. So I've got the sense that actually improving the management and the the way that we treat managers in the company is really critical. Okay, uh, uh, for starters, let's start with the manager. Manager. Whoever that is. Right. Shop floor all the way up. Yeah. So I don't mean when I talk about we need more of them with EQ. Yeah. Emotional intelligence, empathy. We need more of them. Yeah. And we need to select them for that. That they have to have these skills... IT skills or whatever skill, marketing skills or whatever the job is, they have to have a baseline of that. Yeah. They have to be good at that. But the second most important thing is who are they? Yeah. Do they have the EQ? So that to me is the number one. Number two, given technology, hey, technology, we should be working much more flexibly, particularly if you're a serviced or knowledge-based economy, like most of Western Europe, bar maybe Germany and some of the Eastern European countries, which are in heavy manufacturing, that's all gone east anyway. So flexible working is a no-brainer. Why are we polluting our trains and everybody going at the same time and going off? So I think that's so flexible working and using the technology to our advantage, right? Then controlling it so that we can make sure we have more face time with one another. Yeah. Because that's really great. Why do we go to work? Think about you're an insurance company, okay? 
why the hell uh, do you even go into a central office environment? You could do everything as somebody working for an insurance company, as an admin person, sales. You could do that from home, yeah, 100%. So why do we go in? We go in because we want to be with other human beings. Mm. We want to talk about problems we have at home, difficulty with kids, how we perceive the boss, how we perceive the announcement that there's going to be a downsizing. Did you get my message? We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're human beings. Yeah. We want to talk about things with other people. We wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. London, for example, New York, these are service-based cities. You could actually take 80% of people there and say you can work exclusively from home. But we wouldn't want to. Yeah. So let's make sure that people kind of communicate a lot more. Don't work long hours. Long hours are bad for you. doesn't do you any good at all. It's not good for your business either. It really isn't. You want people coming back refreshed. So I think that's a kind of another one. And I think about maybe trying to do novel things by, by talking to your employees. For me, that's the big one. That's a really big one. Okay, what Why does that don't mean? you listen? Why don't you just bloody listen to people and see what they want? And what they want may be not working at all from home. Who the hell knows? Engage them in talking about their job. What would make a good day at work for you mm. what would really really work for you right and you'll find something quite surprising mm. it'll be different than what you want and then see what happens the japanese do that but unfortunately the japanese do one bad thing which is all the managers tend to work extremely long hours in fact they have a word for it it's called koryashi death by overwork right yeah, and, I, and someone told me in, in Japan that the, the culture generally is that you don't leave the office before you bust us. Oh, yeah, absolutely don't. And they're still doing that. And from 20-some-odd years ago that I went there, they're still, they're still doing it. That's their bad thing. But the good thing they have is they do listen to their employees about because it helps them. They want to get ahead. They're very achievement-orientated. Yeah. If they get buy-in for something because they came up with the idea yeah, yeah, yeah. and it works, yeah. that's what all managers think to themselves. How do I, I, okay, if I'm ambitious because I'm a manager, no matter where I am in the hierarchy, and I want to climb the greasy pole, because there will continue to be greasy poles and ladders, yeah. right? Then the best way to climb that is to get them to be productive. The best way to get them to be productive is getting them to decide how you do the job the best. Yeah. Thank you to Sir Carrie Cooper. All of the episodes are live on the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. I've actually, in the weekends, I've made really good progress on my book. So I shan't be putting the podcast on hold just yet. And I've got some really good stuff coming up. I do hope that if you like it, feel free to link into me or share these with your friends, your family, your your pets. Because Apple Podcasts is a racket. And unless you get ratings, they don't put you up the charts. Look, let's feed the racket. Let's play, let's play at the man's game. Don't hate the player, hate the game. So if you do get the chance to give me five stars on Apple Podcasts, I, I truly can't imagine any real person ever doing that. But if you are that person, an immense amount of good karma will be coming your way. See you next time. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.